Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. We need to be prepared for the future. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream. You must ready. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show about natural disasters, climate change and traditional knowledge and how those things are all connected. And you'll hear about that through stories from right across the Pacific. Each week we work with local reporters and they're on the ground letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. Today we take a look at two villages in Fiji that are fighting the same issue, rising sea levels. We have been fighting uh, this war from our childhood days. Until today, you can see that we have seek assistance. We are now burying parts of the villages that needs more soil so water does not come into the village. Two different places and two different stages and approaches. Also, making sure that everyone is included in the planning for a natural disaster, the key aspects of making sure this happens, and how it works on the ground. And we revisit a story from earlier this year, how music and science come together to try and fight climate change in the Pacific. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. What's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. Part of the aim of this entire radio program is to help people to be more prepared for natural disasters, getting in before something happens. There's a village in Fiji that's living with the constant threat of high tides, and they're sick of being reactive to the situation. They now want to become proactive and do something before things get worse. Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Josina Nunga visited the village of Naku to find out more. More than 200 villages in the village of Naku, the district of Muretu, province of Telebu, have been fighting rising sea levels that try to submerge their homes. Recently, 25 houses out of the 50 households are always flooded during high tide despite the construction of floodgates. A concerned village headman, Uraia Buetimbao, says despite the four floodgates, which was funded by the Fiji government to reduce the impact, flood water continues to enter the village during high tide. The, the issue here is heaps of stagnant water, and it's underneath these places. That is something we need to manage. It's waterborne diseases evident. Uh, the water is underneath where we are speaking, or unless there is proper drainage. We have been fighting uh, this war from our childhood days. Until today, you can see that we have seek assistance. We are now burying parts of the villages 
that needs more soil so water does not come into the village. The rising sea level is also affecting our plantation, food security, and we had no other choice but to buy most of our stuff from the market. Uwetimbao says they are also working to ensure that children in the village are safe while learning to adapt to the crisis. The villages have introduced new climate change adaptation activities as the village continues to battle rising tides and flooding. They also admit that they are victims of climate change as the villages have encountered massive soil erosion to foreshore areas, regular flooding and saltwater intrusion. We have done it like a reactive strategy. Like when the water comes comes in, we build here, but that's not enough. We have to approach it from a proactive side. So in the last uh, couple of years, we developed our team to work our way around a scheme plan. We are survivors. We are strong and uh, resilient people. Uh, you know, the soil has turned saline, uh, affecting food security, agricultural productivity, economic returns as a good number of uh, villages are commercial farmers. Uetimbao added villages opted not to relocate but to mitigate and adapt to the challenges brought about by climate change. Chosei Nanuga reporting from Fiji. Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Josan Nanunga with that story. And we'll go back to Fiji in just a moment with a story from a village facing a very similar issue. People's lives have been affected by a disaster. Know what to do. Know what to do. Know what to do. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. See, all the signs are coming. So we have to prepare. Be prepared. Pacific prepared. Still in Fiji, and still with rising sea levels, another village is facing a similar crisis. The difference is this village in Fiji already has a seawall. Seawalls are made from a range of materials. Maybe most common is natural rock, stacked up in huge numbers, creating a a seawall to keep the waves from smashing into the coastline and washing it away. Pacific Prepared reporter Sanyani Boiler from FBC News in Fiji has this story. Ovia village, traditional grounds and its people in Korodowiri are severely affected by the rising tides. says the crisis continues to worsen, especially during high tide and natural disasters. Most of these places are always flooded because of the deteriorating seawall. This has greatly affected villages here at Korodowiri. This is our traditional village and due to climate change, some families had to move out to other places. Tukana is pleading with relevant authorities for assistance to save what remains of their village. When the village is flooded, we are worried about our families and our children. We need help. We are requesting assistance from relevant agencies and from non-government organizations to help save our village from the rising tides. During a high tide, this village, you can see the, the, the impact of this climate change if you go around into this, uh, this village and uh, this issue has been, uh, our, our, as I all said, for so many years. Uh, look around, you see the, the, the seawall. 
this uh, uh, this seal was built having uh, the late uh, early 70s built by our elders and uh, lucky that uh, this seal still uh, stands here that you can see the, the impact of this uh, climate change there are 21 houses here at Korodhuwiri. Villages withstand climate change on a daily basis as rising tides continue to claim their land. It's hard to imagine a community that already has a seawall to protect their homes, but even that's not enough. The rising sea levels are still impacting the community. Pacific Prepared reporter Sanyani Boiler from FBC News in Fiji with that story. The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. Imagine trying to tell someone that your home was slowly disappearing or being destroyed by the impacts of climate change. But the person you're trying to tell doesn't even know where your home is, and they've never seen it on the map. The first thing is a lot of people don't know where Tonga is. Um, that's the most common one. The one that, that shocks me is when, um, is when I say I'm from the Pacific and they don't know where the Pacific is. It must feel like out of sight, out of mind. Mia Kami is a Tongan singer-songwriter and she is constantly having these conversations. But Mia says the one thing that does cut through is music. History repeats itself if we don't tread carefully. Music has always been a significant part of my life, but science never has been. And so um, I knew that going into this space, I can't go in as someone that's an expert on the science of climate issues and Pacific issues, but um, to, be a, to be more of a storyteller in this space rather than a scientist. What sort of questions do you get then off the back of that, um, being someone from the Pacific in, say, for example, in New York or in the States, what sort of questions do you get about or do you get questions, I suppose, about climate change and what it's like in the Pacific because you've obviously spent so much time here? Well, it's interesting because uh, first, the first thing is a lot of people don't know where Tonga is. Um, that's the most common one. The one right. that, that shocks me is when, um, is when I say I'm from the Pacific and they don't know where the Pacific is. And I think that kind of gives you an understanding of their, of their understanding to climate change. And I feel like... Um, is that, is that common, though, to have that reaction? That where is the Pacific? Or I don't know where that is. So. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, this past year, um, I've been able to attend a few conferences that are international. So there's a lot of countries um, that there are a lot of people from other countries that have never heard of the Pacific. Like I'll say, I'm from Tonga. And they're like, where? And then I'll say the, you know, like the Pacific. They'll say, mm, I don't know where that is. I said the Pacific Ocean. They're like, I don't know where that is. And then I have to be like Australia, New Zealand. They're like, oh, yes, yes, Australia, New Zealand. Then I say, yeah, we're like near that. And so I, I feel like that, that really does just give you an understanding of how they sort of gauge our existence, which I feel like contributes to that whole issue of the fact that a lot of people don't realize that climate change threatens our very existence. And the fact that they don't even know we exist in the first place makes it a lot harder, right? Yeah, so it's just really interesting when you go into certain spaces and you realize, like, we're fighting for our existence and these guys don't even know that we exist. The thing that I find comfort in, that I can contribute, is uh, the fact that I can bring art into a space that's dominated by science. And I feel that's the best way that I can connect to people that haven't heard about us. 
um, because it's a way for them to hear our stories in a way that connects with everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter what language, like music, right? So like I said, because I write and I, and I sing these songs, I'm essentially telling our stories in a way that everyone will be able to understand right across the board. Um, and, and, it's, and it goes further than just reaching, you know, the top of your head. It's, you're going deeper into the heart, the soul, because like I said, there's so much at risk for us. It's not just a matter of like, you got to work now so that we can, we'll be okay in like two years. Nah, it's like our entire future is at stake. And so, um, yeah, I feel like going into these spaces with my songs, my guitar, uh, has been a really powerful way to connect with people. And I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to do that in the way that I do. If we fail, if we fail to be that change. Pacific Prepared. We need to be prepared for the future. Helping you stay safe. We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Imagine there's a disaster that hits your community. You know what to do. You've been through it a few times now. You know exactly what you're going to do and where you're going to go. That's all sorted. But when you get to an evacuation centre or a safe place, you realise it's not quite going to accommodate everyone. All communities are made up of a hugely diverse number of people, and sometimes the planning doesn't reflect that diversity. The Australian Red Cross have been in Fiji running training sessions focused on making sure that planning includes everybody. So my name is Veronica Bell, and I'm the head of portfolio development for our international and climate programs at Australian Red Cross. I'm based in Sydney. So the workshop in Suva last week brought together representatives from um, 12 national societies across the Pacific um, to think about um, how to better prepare for disasters. So we're seeing more disasters. We're seeing them having um, increasing impacts on communities And this workshop was um, working with national societies who are in the front line. They have responsibilities with their public authorities to provide first response um, services to communities. And the workshop was an opportunity for people to come together um, for the first time because um, COVID impacted the ability for face-to-face meetings for several years. So this brought people together um, to reconnect and to think about as they as they plan for what's coming, how can they do that better? How can they think about the needs of the communities they're supporting? What's changing on the ground? What are the um, the skills and capacities that they need to be building to be able to offer appropriate services? And how can they make sure that those services are reaching everybody and they're thinking about the needs of um, all people and and considering different people's different needs? And then to make that practical, because that sounds great in theory, but what does that look like on the ground? They actually took um, a scenario-based approach of looking at in the event of a disaster, 
um, and shelter is impacted and communities have their shelter um, affected. What, what are the practical steps that need to be taken to, um, to offer people shelter assistance and to ensure that that shelter is inclusive for all people, particularly thinking about people with disabilities? So what sort of, I guess, holes or challenges came up during or in, in disaster planning did you identify throughout through those workshops? Like what sort of gaps did you identify? Yeah, so um, I, I wasn't in the workshop itself, um, but normally um, the, the, the key things that national societies will think about are, do they have the right people? You know, have they got their volunteers in the right places? Are they equipping them with the right equipment? Um, do they have the appropriate skills? And are they feeling confident? Are they feeling like they're prepared to go out and um, and work with the communities that they that they live in, um, that they themselves are probably impacted as well? Um, how do they feel that they are best prepared to be able to support communities um, when events occur? Do they have access to the resources that people um, will need? So you know, are there uh, warehouses that are stocked with the right goods that will be required um, should disaster events occur. Do they know how to use those um, those stocks that they've got? And again, thinking about inclusiveness, have they got the right stocks for all people in the community? Have they thought about what you know different groups might need, um, what children might need, what women might need? what older people might need and what people with disabilities might need. So it's really making sure that everything is in place and people are appropriately equipped and skilled and confident to be able to take action when they need to. And just, just on that, on the different needs, it sort of raises, I guess, um, cultural aspects of, of living in the Pacific as well. Many Pacific countries have their own cultural um, protocols around natural disasters and climate change sort of events. How does the Red Cross kind of working with locals to get a handle on those cultural needs and requirements of everyone and how that might impact what how you shape what you're doing in your work? National societies across the Pacific, um, they are sovereign organisations of those countries. So um, Australian Red Cross is obviously the national society in Australia. Um, and the national societies across the Pacific are led by um, by locals. Um, so it's really a, a very locally driven um, movement. We are the largest humanitarian network in the world, um, and we operate in 191 countries with 16 million volunteers. So it's really a locally led um, network drawing on the skills and, and knowledge and understanding of the people who live in the communities that may be impacted by disasters. So it's not people um, who, who don't know those areas. Um, they, they, they are of the community. And, and we talk about national societies and volunteers um, being in community before, during and after disasters. And, and living and, and understanding those cultures and, and the practices that um, that people um, that the skills and knowledge that people have 
But an organisation like Australian Red Cross can then um, also uh, share different learnings and different techniques and different knowledge that we are privy to um, and, and share that with partners in the Pacific um, to complement Indigenous knowledge. So not to displace, um, not to replace, but to offer complementary on top of local knowledge, um, additional uh, technologies, um, information, lessons from other countries um, to, to build on, uh, on Indigenous knowledge but also understanding what's happening in the Pacific and taking that out into the wider network, even back into Australia. You know, things that might be happening in a, in a Pacific nation could have real resonance for another country. And Australian Red Cross can play that role of um, information broker. Mm. And I'm guessing that that sort of um, discussion around, like you said, not replacing but just complementing the knowledge would have to be had at the beginning or the very early stages, obviously, to ensure that you had the trust of the local people as well who you, you were trying to assist in this kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think trust is um, its so important and particularly as we're seeing more disasters as climate change is causing um, change. Um, building trust and having um, the confidence of people that when advice is shared and knowledge is shared and ideas are put forward, um, that they are coming from trusted voices. They're coming from people who um, communities have confidence in. And that local network and that ongoing presence really does build that because, you know, if you're in the midst of a disaster, Panic is high. Fear is very high. Um, your ability to to trust people at that point is going to be really challenged. Whereas if you've done lots of preparatory work and you've built those relationships and you've got that confidence in place, then um, you've really got the strong foundations to take action when you need to. So climate change is obviously impacting the Pacific um, significantly. They really are at the front lines of experiencing um the the real threats of climate change and it's become um uh, a lens through which we consider everything so um as the as the context in which national societies are working is changing and um, so technical support needs to change as well so um understanding um, new experiences, what's happening um, that's different. Um, Timeframes are no longer as um, predictable as they might have been in the past. Seasons are changing. And so that really does require adaptive, flexible, dynamic um, planning and thinking about the new, um, the new experiences that communities are facing. Um, the new issues that communities need to be thinking about. Um, so it's very much a consideration in all of the training packages that are developed for volunteers and um, all of the thinking around what sort of stocks and supplies um, are needed to address the challenges that communities are facing. And, and in the preparedness space, what are the steps that people need to be taking at a much earlier stage as they see the um the the context and the environment around them changing what can they do to mitigate the impacts of those changes 
some of the um, there, there's a lot of big projects like we're talking about at the moment with planning for disasters and and how climate change fits within that as well. How do you sort of see the the big picture go down right down to the ground level and maybe into some of the small villages around the Pacific and actually making a real life change to some of those villages? What what do you see? Um, I think uh, a, a big topic of conversation at the moment is um, acting in advance of disasters. So not only being prepared for disasters, but also taking action earlier. And you'll hear the phrase anticipatory action, um, early action. Um, but there is real recognition that waiting for disasters to occur um, is no longer um uh, appropriate. <laughs> and it's also, um, it's not the smart thing to do. Um, you need to be able to take action um, earlier and and start reducing the impact of disasters. You can't necessarily completely offset them, um, but you need to be able to act in advance of them uh, occurring. And that might be something like um, thinking about how to reinforce local infrastructure. Um, if there are weather forecasts that are saying um, there could be a cyclone or there could be um, increased uh, drought um, conditions, what are the steps that you can take earlier before you find yourself fully in that situation? Um, there's also uh, a lot of um, sort of focus on early warning systems. So how can you get messages out to communities earlier? And to your point of right down to the community level, one of the things that national societies can do is play that translation role of quite technical information that may be shared at a national level. Um, how can you translate those messages down to communities who, who may not have access to certain um, media platforms um, how can you convey messages in ways that it's going to be understood? Does that mean, you know, sort of local message boards in communities? Does it mean making sure that messages are delivered in in the right language for people to be able to understand them and, and take action? Um, you know, many people might sort of be more responsive to pictorial images. And so it's all of that translation work of being able to harness increase technology and um, but translate it in ways that it's meaningful for the people who really are on the front lines and who need to benefit from it. Veronica Bell, Head of Portfolio Development, International and Climate with the Australian Red Cross. I'm Fred Hooper and you're listening to Pacific Prepared. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared is supported by the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of PACMAS or the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, NBC Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Capital FM 107 Vanuatu, FBC Fiji, Samoa National Radio 2AP, SIBC Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, and TBC Tonga. 
If you're working on something that's directly related to this program, let us know so that we can tell other people about it. Maybe you've got a story idea, a personal experience to share, a topic to cover, or someone that you think we should meet. The easiest way to get in touch is to search for Pacific Prepared and then scroll down to the Connect With Us section. You can also listen back to the program. Just type Pacific Prepared into your search engine and you'll find us. Part of the aim of this program is to start conversations about disasters. What would you do and how will you prepare? We're trying to help you make the next disaster easier for you and your family. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information that you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.